0: Section 2 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 18 Chartism and Young Ireland, Part 2. Before the death of O'Connell, the formal secession of the Young Ireland party from the regular repealers had taken place. It arose out of an attempt of O'Connell to force upon the whole body a declaration condemning the use of physical force, of the sword, as it was grandiosely called, in any patriotic movement whatever. It was in itself a sign of O'Connell's failing powers and judgment that he expected to get a body of men about the age of Maur to make a formal declaration against the weapon of Leonidas and Miltiades and all the other heroes dear to classically instructed youth. Mawr declaimed against the idea in a burst of poetic rhetoric, which made his followers believe that a new Grattan of bolder style was coming up to recall the manhood of Ireland that had been banished by the agitation of O'Connell and the priests. I am not one of those tame moralists, the young orator exclaimed, who say that liberty is not worth one drop of blood, Against this miserable maxim, the noblest virtue that has saved and sanctified humanity appears in judgment. From the blue waters of the Bay of Salamis, from the valley over which the sun stood still and lit the Israelite to victory, from the cathedral in which the sword of Poland has been sheathed in the shroud of Kosciuszko, from the convent of St. Isidore, where the fiery hand that rent the ensign of St. George upon the plains of Ulster has moldered into dust, from the sands of the desert where the wild genius of the Algerine so long has scared the eagle of the Pyrenees, from the ducal palace in this kingdom where the memory of the gallant and seditious Geraldine enhances more than royal favor the splendor of his race, from the solitary grave within this mute city which a dying bequest has left without an epitaph, Oh, from every spot where heroism has had a sacrifice or a triumph, a voice breaks in upon the cringing crowd that cherishes this maxim crying, away with it, away with it. The reader will probably think that a generation of young men might have enjoyed as much as they could get of this sparkling declamation without much harm being done thereby to the cause of order. Only a crowd of well-educated young Irishmen, fresh from college and with the teaching of their country's history which the nation was pouring out weekly in prose and poetry, could possibly have understood all its historical allusions. No harm indeed would have come of this graceful and poetic movement were it not for events which the young Ireland party had no share in bringing about. The Continental Revolutions of the year 1848 suddenly converted the movement from a literary and poetical organization into a rebellious conspiracy. The fever of that wild epoch spread itself at once over Ireland. When crowns were going down everywhere, what wonder if Hellenic young Irelandism believed that the moment had come when the crown of the Saxon invader too was destined to fall. The French Revolution and the flight of Louis Philippe set Ireland in a rapture of hope and rebellious joy. Lamartine became the hero of the hour. A copy of his showy, superficial Girondiste was in the hand of every true young Irelander. Maurer was at once declared to be the Vergniaud of the Irish Revolution. Smith O'Brien was called upon to become its Lafayette. A deputation of young Irelanders with O'Brien and Mower at their head Waited upon Lamartine and were received by him with a cool good sense which made Englishmen greatly respect his judgment and prudence, but which much disconcerted the hopes of the young Irelanders. Many of these latter appear to have taken in their most literal sense some words of Lamartine's about the sympathy of the new French Republic with the struggles of oppressed nationalities, and to have fancied that the Republic would seriously consider the propriety of going to war with England at the request of a few young men from Ireland, headed by a country gentleman and member of Parliament. In the meantime, a fresh and a stronger influence than that of O'Brien or Mower had arisen in Young Irelandism. Young Ireland itself now split into two sections, one for immediate action, the other for caution and delay. The party of action acknowledged the leadership of John Mitchell, the organ of this section was the newspaper started by Mitchell in opposition to the nation, which had grown too slow for him. The new journal was called the United Irishman, and in a short time it had completely distanced the nation in popularity and in circulation. The deliberate policy of the United Irishman was to force the hand first of the government and then of the Irish people. Mitchell had made up his mind so to rouse the passion of the people as to compel the government to take steps for the prevention of rebellion by the arrest of some of the leaders. Then Mitchell calculated upon the populace rising to defend or rescue their heroes, and then the game would be afoot. Ireland would be entered in rebellion, and the rest would be for fate to decide. This looks now a very wild and hopeless scheme. So, of course, it proved itself to be but it did not appear so hopeless at the time, even to cool heads. At least it may be called the only scheme which had the slightest chance of success. We do not say of success in establishing the independence of Ireland, which Mitchell sought for, but in setting a genuine rebellion afoot. Mitchell was the one formidable man among the rebels of 48. He was the one man who distinctly knew what he wanted and was prepared to run any risk to get it. He was cast in the very mold of the genuine revolutionist, and under different circumstances might have played a formidable part. He came from the northern part of the island and was a Protestant dissenter. It is a fact worthy of note that all the really formidable rebels Ireland has produced in modern time, from Wolfe Tone to Mitchell, have been Protestants. Mitchell was a man of great literary talent, indeed a man of something like genius, He wrote a clear, bold, incisive prose, keen in its scorn and satire going directly to the heart of its purpose. As mere prose, some of it is worth reading even today for its cutting force and pitiless irony. Mitchell issued in his paper, week after week, a challenge to the government to prosecute him. He poured out the most fiery sedition and used every incentive that words could supply to rouse a hot-headed people to arms, or an impatient government to some act of severe repression. Mitchell was quite ready to make a sacrifice of himself if it were necessary. It is possible enough that he had persuaded himself into the belief that a rising in Ireland against the government might be successful. But there is good reason to think that he would have been quite satisfied if he could have stirred up, by any process, a genuine and sanguinary insurrection which would have read well in the papers and redeemed the Irish nationalists from what he considered the disgrace of never having shown that they knew how to die for their cause. He kept on urging the people to prepare for a warlike effort, and every week's United Irishmen contained long descriptions of how to make pikes and how to use them, how to cast bullets. How to make the streets as dangerous for the hoofs of cavalry horses as Bruce made the field of Bannockburn. Some of the recipes, if we may call them so, were of a peculiarly ferocious kind. The use of vitriol was recommended among other destructive agencies. A feeling of detestation was not unnaturally aroused against Mitchell, even in the minds of many who sympathized with his general opinions and those whom we may call the girondists of the party somewhat shrank from him and would gladly have been rid of him. It is true that the most ferocious of these vitriolic articles were not written by him, nor did he know of the famous recommendation about the throwing of vitriol until it appeared in print. He was, however, justly and properly as well as technically responsible for all that appeared in a paper started with such a purpose as that of the United Irishmen, and it is not even certain that he would have disapproved of the vitriol-throwing recommendation if he had known of it in time. He never disavowed it, nor took any pains to show that it was not his own. The fact that he was not its author is therefore only mentioned here as a matter more or less interesting, and not at all as any excuse for Mitchell's general style of newspaper war-making. He was a fanatic, clever, and fearless, He would neither have asked quarter nor given it, and undoubtedly, if Ireland had had many men of his desperate resolve, she would have been plunged into a bloody, an obstinate, and a disastrous contest against the strength of the British government. In the meantime, that government had to do something. The Lord Lieutenant could not go on forever allowing a newspaper to scream out appeals to rebellion, and to publish every week minute descriptions of the easiest and quickest way of killing off English soldiers. The existing laws were not strong enough to deal with Mitchell and to suppress his paper. It would have been of little account to proceed against him under the ordinary laws which condemned seditious speaking or writing. Prosecutions were, in fact, set on foot against O'Brien and Mauer, and Mitchell himself for ordinary offenses of that kind, but the accused men got bail and went on meantime speaking and writing as before, and when the cases came to be tried by a jury, the government failed to obtain a conviction. The government, therefore, brought in a bill for the better security of the crown and government, making all written incitement to insurrection or resistance to the law felony punishable with transportation. This measure was passed rapidly through all its stages. It enabled the government to suppress newspapers like the United Irishmen and to keep in prison without bail while awaiting trial, anyone charged with an offense under the new act. Mitchell soon gave the authorities an opportunity of testing the efficacy of the act in his person. He repeated his incitements to insurrection, was arrested, and thrown into prison. The climax of the excitement in Ireland was reached when Mitchell's trial came on. There can be little doubt that he was filled with a strong hope that his followers would attempt to rescue him. He wrote from his cell that he could hear around the walls of his prison every night the tramp of hundreds of sympathizers, felons in heart and soul. The government, for their part, were in full expectation that some sort of rising would take place. For the time, Smith O'Brien, Maurer, and the other young Irelanders were thrown into the shade, and the eyes of the whole country were turned upon Mitchell's cell. Had there been another Mitchell out of doors, as fearless and reckless as the Mitchell in the prison, a sanguinary outbreak would probably have taken place. But the leaders of the movement outside were by no means clear in their own minds as to the course they ought to pursue. Many of them were well satisfied of the hopelessness and folly of any rebellious movement, and nearly all were quite aware that in any case the country just then was wholly unprepared for anything of the kind. Not a few had a shrewd suspicion that the movement never had taken any real hold on the heart of the country. Some were jealous of Mitchell's sudden popularity, and in their secret hearts, were disposed to curse him for the trouble he had brought on them. But they could not attempt to give open utterance to such sentiment. Mitchell's boldness and resolve had placed them at a sad disadvantage. He had that superiority of influence over them that downright determination always gives a man over colleagues who do not quite know what they would have. One thing, however, they could do, and that they did. They discouraged any idea of an attempt to rescue Mitchell. His trial came on, he was found guilty. He made a short but powerful and impassioned speech from the dock. He was sentenced to fourteen years' transportation. He was hurried under an escort of cavalry through the streets of Dublin, put on board a ship of war, and in a few hours was on his way to Bermuda. Dublin remained perfectly quiet. The country outside hardly knew what was happening until Mitchell was well on his way and far-seeing persons smiled to themselves and said the danger was all over. So indeed it proved to be. The remainder of the proceedings partook rather of the nature of burlesque. The young Ireland leaders became more demonstrative than ever, the nation newspaper now went in openly for rebellion, but rebellion at some unnamed time, and when Ireland should be ready to meet the Saxon. It seemed to be assumed that the Saxon, with a characteristic love of fair play, would let his foes make all the preparations they pleased, without any interference, and that when they announced themselves ready, then, but not until then, would he come forth to fight with them. Smith O'Brien went about the country holding reviews of the Confederates, as the young Irelanders called themselves. The government, however, showed a contempt for the rules of fair play, suspended the habeas corpus act in Ireland and issued warrants for the arrest of Smith O'Brien and Maurer, and other Confederate leaders. The young Irelanders received the news of this unchivalric proceeding with an outburst of anger and surprise which was evidently genuine. They had clearly made up their minds that they were to go on playing at preparation for rebellion as long as they liked to keep up the game. They were completely puzzled by the new condition of things. It was not very clear what Leonidas or Vernio would have done under such circumstances. It was certain that if they were all arrested, the country would not stir hand or foot on their behalf. Some of the principal leaders, therefore, Smith O'Brien, Maurer, Dillon, and others, left Dublin and went down into the country. It is not certain even yet whether they had any clear purpose of rebellion at first. It seems probable that they thought of evading arrest for a while, and trying meantime if the country was ready to follow them into an armed movement." They held a series of gatherings, which might be described as meetings of agitators or marshallings of rebels, according as one was pleased to interpret their purpose. But this sort of thing very soon drifted into rebellion. The principal body of the followers of Smith O'Brien came into collision with the police at a place called Ballingary in Tipperary. They attacked a small force of police who took refuge in the cottage of a poor widow named Cormac. The police held the house as a besieged fort, and the rebels attacked them from the famous cabbage garden outside. The police fired a few volleys, the rebels fired with what wretched muskets and rifles they possessed, but without harming a single policeman. After a few of them had been killed or wounded, it never was perfectly certain that any were actually killed, the rebel army dispersed and the rebellion was all over. In a few days after, poor Smith O'Brien was taken quietly at the railway station in Thurless, Tipperary. He was calmly buying a ticket for Limerick when he was recognized. He made no resistance whatever and seemed to regard the whole mummery as at an end. He accepted his fate with the composure of a gentleman, and indeed in all the part which was left for him to play he bore himself with dignity. It is but justice to an unfortunate gentleman to say that some reports which were rather ignobly set abroad about his having showed a lack of personal courage in the ballingarry affray were as all will readily believe quite untrue some of the police deposed that during the fight if fight it could be called poor o'brien exposed his life with entire recklessness one policeman said he could have shot him easily at several periods of the little drama but he felt reluctant to be the slayer of the misguided descendant of the irish kings It afterwards appeared also that any little chance of carrying on any manner of rebellion was put a stop to by Smith O'Brien's own resolution that his rebels must not seize the private property of anyone. He insisted that his rebellion must pay its way and the funds were soon out. The Confederate leader woke from a dream when he saw his followers dispersing after the first volley or two from the police. From that moment he behaved like a dignified gentleman equal to the fate he had brought upon him. Mauer and two of his companions were arrested a few days after, as they were wandering hopelessly and aimlessly through the mountains of Tipperary. The prisoners were brought for trial before a special commission held at Clomel in Tipperary in the following September. Smith O'Brien was the first put on trial and he was found guilty. He said a few words with grave and dignified composure, simply declaring that he had endeavored to do his duty to his native country and that he was prepared to abide the consequences. He was sentenced to death, after the old form in cases of high treason, to be hanged, beheaded, and quartered. Morrow was afterwards found guilty. Great commiseration was felt for him. His youth and his eloquence made all men and women pity him. His father was a wealthy man who had had a respected career in Parliament, and there had seemed at one time to be a bright and happy life before young Mauer. The short address in which Mauer vindicated his actions when called upon to show cause why sentence of death should not be passed upon him was full of manly and pathetic eloquence. He had nothing, he said, to retract or to ask pardon for. I am not here to crave with faltering lip the life I have consecrated to the independence of my country— I offer to my country, as some proof of the sincerity with which I have thought and spoken and struggled for her, the life of a young heart. The history of Ireland explains my crime and justifies it. Even here, where the shadows of death surround me, and from which I see my early grave opening for me in no consecrated soil, the hope which beckoned me forth on that perilous sea whereon I have been wrecked, animates, consoles, enraptures me. No— I do not despair of my poor old country, her peace, her liberty, her glory. Morrow was sentenced to death with the same hideous formalities as those which had been observed in the case of Smith O'Brien. No one, however, really believed for a moment that such a sentence was likely to be carried out in the reign of Queen Victoria. The sentence of death was changed into one of transportation for life, nor was even this carried out. The convicts were all sent to Australia and a few years after, Mitchell contrived to make his escape, followed by Maurer. The manner of escape was at least of doubtful credit to the prisoners, for they were placed under parole, and a very nice question was raised as to whether they had not broken their parole by the attempt to escape. It was a nice question, which in the case of men of very delicate sense of honor could, one would think, hardly have arisen at all. The point in Mitchell's case was that he actually went to the police court— within whose jurisdiction he was, formally and publicly announced to the magistrate that he withdrew his parole and invited the magistrate to arrest him then and there. But the magistrate was unprepared for his coming and was quite thrown off his guard. Mitchell was armed and so was a friend who accompanied him and who had planned and carried out the escape. They had horses waiting at the door, and when they saw that the magistrate did not know what to do, they left the court, mounted the horses, and rode away." It was contended by Mitchell and by his companion, Mr. P. J. Smith, afterwards a distinguished member of Parliament, that they had fulfilled all the conditions required by the parole, and had formally and honorably withdrawn it. One is only surprised how men of honor could thus puzzle and deceive themselves. The understood condition of a parole is that a man who intends to withdraw it shall place himself before his captors, in exactly the same condition as he was when on his pledged word of honor they allowed him a comparative liberty. It is evident that a prisoner would never be allowed to go at large on parole if he were to make use of his liberty to arrange all the conditions of an escape, and when everything was ready, take his captors by surprise, tell them he was no longer bound by the conditions of the pledge, and that they might keep him if they could." This was the view taken by Smith O'Brien, who declined to have anything to do with any plot for escape while he was on parole. The advisers of the Crown recommended that a conditional pardon should be given to the gallant and unfortunate gentleman who had behaved in so honorable a manner. Smith O'Brien received a pardon on condition of his not returning to these islands, but this condition was withdrawn after a while, and he came back to Ireland. He died quietly in Wales in 1864. Mitchell settled for a while in Richmond, Virginia, and became an ardent advocate of slavery and an impassioned champion of the Southern rebellion. He returned to the North after the rebellion, and more lately came to Ireland, where, owing to some defect in the criminal law, he could not be arrested, his time of penal servitude having expired, although he had not served it. He was still a hero with a certain class of the people. He was put up as a candidate for an Irish county and elected. He was not allowed to enter the House of Commons, however. The election was declared void, and a new writ was issued. He was elected again, and some turmoil was expected when suddenly Mitchell, who had long been in sinking health, was withdrawn from the controversy by death. He should have died before. The later years of his life were only an anticlimax. His attitude in the dock in 1848 had something of dignity and heroism in it and even the staunchest enemies of his cause admired him. He had undoubtedly great literary ability, and if he had never reappeared in politics, the world would have thought that a really brilliant light had been prematurely extinguished. Maurer served in the Army of the Federal States when the war broke out, and showed much of the soldier's spirit and capacity. His end was premature and inglorious. He fell from the deck of a steamer one night. It was dark, and there was a strong current running, help came too late. A false step, a dark night, and the muddy waters of the Missouri closed the career that had opened with so much promise of brightness. Many of the conspicuous young Irelanders rose to some distinction. Charles Gavin Duffy, the editor of The Nation, who was twice put on his trial after the failure of the insurrection, but whom the jury would not on either occasion convict, became a member of the House of Commons and afterwards emigrated to the colony of Victoria. He rose to be prime minister there and received knighthood and a pension. Thomas Darcy McGee, another prominent rebel, went to the United States and thence to Canada, where he rose to be a minister of the crown. He was one of the most loyal supporters of the British connection. His untimely death by the hand of an assassin was lamented in England as well as in the colony he had served so well. Some of the young Irelanders remained in the United States and won repute. Others returned to England, and of these not a few entered the House of Commons and were respected there, the follies of their youth quite forgotten by their colleagues, even if not disavowed by themselves. A remarkable illustration of the spirit of fairness that generally pervades the House of Commons is found in the fact that everyone there respected John Martin, who, to the day of his death, avowed himself, in Parliament, and out of it, a consistent and unrepentant opponent of British rule in Ireland. He was respected because of the purity of his character and the transparent sincerity of his purpose. Martin had been devoted to Mitchell in his lifetime, and he died a few days after Mitchell's death. The Young Ireland movement came and vanished like a shadow. It never had any reality or substance in it. It was a literary and poetic inspiration altogether, It never took the slightest hold of the peasantry. It hardly touched any men of mature years. It was rather pretty playing at rebellion. It was an imitation of the French Revolution as the Girondists imitated the patriots of Greece and Rome. But it might perhaps have had a chance of doing memorable mischief if the policy of the one only man in the business who really was in earnest and was reckless had been carried out. It is another illustration of the fact which O'Connell's movement had exemplified before, that in Irish politics a climax cannot be repeated or recalled. There is something fitful in all Irish agitation. The national emotion can be wrought up to a certain temperature, and if at that boiling point nothing is done, the heat suddenly goes out, and no blowing of a cyclopean bellows can rekindle it. The repeal agitation was brought up to this point when the meeting at Clontarf was convened. The dispersal of the meeting was the end of the whole agitation. With the Young Ireland movement, the trial of Mitchell formed the climax. After that, a wise legislator would have known that there was nothing more to fear. Petillon, the revolutionary mayor of Paris, knew that when it rained, his partisans could do nothing. There were in 1848 observant Irishmen who knew that after the Mitchell climax had been reached, the crowd would disperse, not to be collected again for that time. These two agitations, the Chartist and the young Ireland, constituted what may be called our tribute to the power of the insurrectionary spirit that was abroad over Europe in 1848. In almost every other European state, revolution raised its head fiercely and fought out its claims in the very capital under the eyes of bewildered royalty. The whole of Italy, from the Alps to the Straits of Messina, and from Venice to Genoa, was thrown into convulsion. Our Italy once again shone o'er with civil swords. There was insurrection in Berlin and in Vienna. The emperor had to fly from the latter city as the pope had fled from Rome. In Paris, there came a red republican rising against a republic that strove not to be red and the rising was crushed by Cavignac with a terrible strenuousness that made some of the streets of Paris literally to run with blood. It was a grim foreshadowing of the Commune of 1871. Another remarkable foreshadowing of what was to come was seen in the fact that Prince Louis Napoleon, long an exile from France, had been allowed to return to it, and at the close of the year, in the passion for law and order at any price born of the red republican excesses, had been elected president of the French Republic. Hungary was in arms, Spain was in convulsion, even Switzerland was not safe. Our contribution to this general commotion was to be found in the demonstration on Kennington Common and the abortive attempt at a rising near There could not possibly be a truer tribute to the solid strength of our system. Not for one moment was the political constitution of England seriously endangered. Not for one hour did the safety of our great communities require a call upon the soldiers instead of upon the police. Not one charge of cavalry was needed to put down the fiercest outburst of the rebellious spirit in England. Not one single execution took place. The meaning of this is clear. It is not that there were no grievances in our system calling for redress. It is not that the existing institutions did not bear heavily down on many classes. It is not that our political or social system was so conspicuously better than that of some European countries which were torn and plowed up by revolution. To imagine that we owed our freedom from revolution to our freedom from serious grievance Would be to misread altogether the lessons offered to our statesmen by that eventful year. We have done the work of whole generations of reformers in the interval between this time and that. We have made peaceful reforms, political, industrial, legal, since then, which, if not to be had otherwise, would have justified any appeal to revolution. There, however, we touch upon the lesson of the time. Our political and constitutional system rendered an appeal to force unnecessary and superfluous. No call to arms was needed to bring about any reform that the common judgment of the country might demand. Other peoples flew to arms because they were driven by despair, because there was no way in their political constitution for the influence of public opinion to make itself felt, because those who were in power held it by the force of bayonets And not of public agreement. The results of the year were, on the whole, unfavorable to popular liberty. The results of the year that followed were decidedly reactionary. The time had not come in 1848 or 1849 for liberal principles to assert themselves. Their great deed, to quote some of the words of our English poetess, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, was too great. We in this country were saved alike from the revolution and the reaction by the universal recognition of the fact among all who gave themselves time to think, that public opinion, being the ultimate ruling power, was the only authority to which an appeal was needed, and that in the end justice would be done. All but the very wildest spirits could afford to wait, and no revolutionary movement is really dangerous which is only the work of the wildest spirits. End of Section 2.